Welcome to this edition of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We are pleased to share a recording of a recent event held at Wharton. The Wharton Alternative Investments Initiative and the Penn Blockchain Club hosted a fireside chat with Michael Sonnenschein, Managing Director of Grayscale Investments, the sponsor of Bitcoin Investment Trust. The conversation was hosted by Sarah Hammer, Senior Director of the Wharton Alternative Investments Initiative. Michael and Sarah discussed the basics of blockchain, the growth of cryptocurrencies, and the dynamics of and changing regulatory environment for digital investing. Uh, my name is Sarah Hammer, and uh, I'd like to thank our guest, Michael Sunnenschein from Grayscale Investments, joining us here today uh, at Wharton. And I'd also like to thank uh, Professor Bilge Yilmaz, who's our faculty director for the Wharton Alternative Investments Initiative uh, and the Blockchain Club for helping to support this event today. Um, and thank you all of you for coming. This is the first of what hopefully will be many uh, events in the area of blockchain and digital investing. And we're very excited to be talking about uh, this area today. Um, I'm going to introduce Michael from Grayscale Investments. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, Michael joined Grayscale in January 2014. He is a managing director responsible for overseeing the daily operations and growth of the Grayscale business, spanning sales, operations, product management, and investor relations. With more than $2 billion in assets under management, Michael is responsible for maintaining many of the firm's key client relationships, uh, including family offices, hedge funds, and institutional investors. Prior to Grayscale, Michael was a financial advisor at J.P. Morgan Securities, covering high net worth individuals and institutions. Uh, he's also worked at Barclays Wealth, providing coverage to middle market hedge funds and institutions. So a very broad range of experience. I'm sure we're going to have a lot of questions for you today. Uh, he earned his BA from uh, Emory University and an MBA from the Stern School of Business at NYU. And thank you again, Michael, for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I just want to let all of you know, we're um, in the fireside chat format today. We're going to be very informal. And so I'd like to encourage you to raise your hand, ask questions. Uh, feel free to jump in if you uh, have an inquiry about something that we're talking about. We'd like to keep today's session as interactive as possible. Sure. And actually, I'm just going to jump in and just do a little quick audience participation thing just mm -hmm. to kind of gauge where we are. Can you raise your hand if you own or Actually, if you currently own any digital currency. Wow. OK. Um, put your hands down. Can you raise your hand if you think that digital currencies are not here to stay? They're a scam. They're a farce. They're a fad? OK, well, that makes me feel really good about my job. OK. <laughs> um, OK. And. Um, can you raise your hand if you've owned digital currency for more than a year? OK. Awesome. This is a friendly, non-hostile audience. I like it. Can I ask a, a follow-up? Can you raise your hand if you have ever mined Bitcoin? Wow. OK. Any, anyone currently mining? Are you charging the electricity back to Penn? <laughs> Plead the fifth? OK. <laughs> awesome. All right, good. Well, so it sounds like we have a really interested audience today. I'm glad to hear it. So we're going to start with uh, some very basic questions. And again, uh, please feel free to jump in uh, if you have a more detailed question about the line of discussion. Uh, but we're going to start with something really simple. What is distributed ledger and the blockchain 
Uh, and why is it so significant? Why are we talking about it here today? Yeah, sure. So um, first, let me just say that, um, well, actually, before we dive into that, I just want to give a little bit more background on kind of my company, what we're doing in the space, right. and why I'm even qualified to even talk to all of you about this. So I left JP Morgan about, I guess, a little over four years ago um, in search of, I guess, something that I would have a little bit more of a connection between what I was doing and what impact that was going to have on the business, right? Having been at Bank of America, Barclays, JP Morgan, certainly had a great time on Wall Street. It certainly helped me learn a lot, and I'm not by any means discouraging anybody from a Wall Street career, um, but I needed to have more of that connection. And so I started looking at family offices and hedge funds, and I think I started getting some pretty good offers. And then I was fortunate to connect with the founder and CEO of my company. His name is Barry Silbert. Um, he also went to Emory uh, Business School as an undergrad, and we just kind of had this instant connection. And so Barry, I really think, is a visionary. Um, and he kind of sold me on his vision. He said, Michael, come help me build something. You can always go work for a hedge fund or a family office and you know, take a chance, and uh, you won't look back. So lesson learned there is when it feels right and there's a chance you can take, um, and you can take it without taking on too much risk, um, take it. Um, and nothing's permanent. So I would definitely kind of put that advice out to everyone. And so at the time, Barry was running a company called Second Market, um, which is the company I originally started working for him at. Second Market was a company that was heavily involved in trading private company stock. So before Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Zynga, all these companies went public, we had created a marketplace for buyers and sellers to meet each other, and the company was wildly successful. Um, Barry, however, though, got kind of bit by the Bitcoin bug, if you will, I'd say probably around 2011, 2012. And um, he started buying Bitcoin, um, great trade for him. Um, started investing in a bunch of digital currency related businesses. Um, so I would say probably he and Tim Draper would probably be the two earliest angels that were out there um, investing in, in uh, Bitcoin and blockchain companies. Um, and so some of his earliest investments are things like the seed round of Coinbase, of which I'm sure there are some Coinbase customers in this room. Um, the seed round of Ripple and the seed round of Zappo and a lot of the companies that are building the picks and the shovels of this industry. And so that kind of rubbed off on the board, a lot of employees at Second Market, and it caused one, of our business, one side of our business, our broker-dealer, to actually be given the mandate to start trading digital currency. Mm -hmm. um, they historically were trading things like Facebook and things like that. Um, it also caused Barry to say, well, you know what, I think digital currency and at least Bitcoin for now is going to be here to stay and people are going to want to have access to it and they're not going to necessarily know where to buy it or how to store it or what price to pay for it. So if we can create an investment product that lets people gain exposure to the asset and removes all of the frictions that I just mentioned, mm -hmm. very much the same way GLD does for gold or SLV does for silver on the mm -hmm. stock market, you know, maybe we're really going to be onto something here. And so we launched a Bitcoin investment fund back in September of 2013. Mm -hmm. um, if you fast forward to late 2015, uh, we sold Second Market, so it got acquired by NASDAQ. And the parts of the business that remained were the parts that were already working on digital currencies. So we rebranded, we repackaged ourselves, and at the beginning of 2016, we formed a new holding company called Digital Currency Group. So Digital Currency Group's mission is to accelerate the development of a better financial system, primarily through the proliferation of digital currencies, blockchain technology, distributed ledger technology, mm -hmm. et cetera. And so I think the 
closest models that we hope to emulate at the DCG level are SoftBank and IAC and Berkshire Hathaway and mm -hmm. um, Liberty. And, and, and so basically any company where the parent company, the balance sheet is used to buy other companies, acquire companies, um, you know, invest in companies, but doesn't really have a product or a service at the parent level. Mm -hmm. And so when we formed the company at the beginning of 2016, we did a small capital raise. And so some of our investors include MasterCard and CIBC and Western Union and Foxconn and Prudential, um, New York Life, a whole bunch of really kind of corporate strategic investors that were interested and kind of wanted a front row seat to mm -hmm. what was going on in the space. And so today, DCG, we're all in New York, um, and we're basically broken down into, I guess, three buckets of assets. Um, so the first of those is venture capital. Mm -hmm. um, we've now invested in over 120 different digital currency-related businesses in more than 26 countries around oh. the world. So it makes us not necessarily the largest check writer, but it certainly makes us the most prolific investor in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and our portfolio, I'm very pleased to say, is doing very well. It's probably running at an unsustainable 60, 70% IRR, which is just insane. Um, but it, it, and it's not so much kind of the value that we're getting from the return on these investments or where these companies are growing and the marks that they're raising their next rounds at. Um, it has more to do with kind of the insight that we get from our portfolio companies. So mm -hmm. for example, we have an investment in the leading Bitcoin exchange in India. And so something like that gives us really good data to say, is this really happening on the ground in India? Are people really excited about this? And what were their volumes three months ago and six months ago and 12 months ago? Um, and so examples like that are kind of really helping us to ensure that we're all not just drinking each other's Kool-Aid in the office every day, um, but that what we actually believe is transpiring on a global level is in fact happening. Um, and so VC is the company's balance sheet. It's not a fund. Um, so we continue to deploy capital opportunistically. Um, the second bucket of assets is just digital currency. So on our balance sheet, in addition to cash, receivables, all the things all you finance folks know is on a balance sheet, um, is a lot of digital currency. So we have principal positions now primarily in Bitcoin, Ethereum Classic mm -hmm. and Zcash mm -hmm. um, are kind of our three highest convictions. And then we also opportunistically will trade in and out of some things and largely have stayed away from ICOs. And that's something we can get into talking about mm -hmm. tonight if the audience wants to talk about ICOs. Um, and then the third bucket of assets that DCG has are subsidiary businesses. So if any of you are actively involved in the space, actually raise your hand. Who has been on Coindesk.com? Okay. Good amount. Okay, so Coindesk is the leading news, research, media, events platform um, for the digital currency space. It's a business we acquired in 2016. Um, and again, they're kind of like the HuffPost, Financial Times, WSJ for, for our industry. Um, and then the two other businesses that work very closely together, one is our broker-dealer business, um, took on the name Genesis Global Trading. Mm -hmm. um, they're the only SEC FINRA-registered broker-dealer that's trading digital currencies at the moment. And so they're block buyers and sellers of large um, you know, blocks of Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, et cetera. And they're trading with miners, large holders, early adopters, um, various folks in the space. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third business is Grayscale Investments, mm -hmm. um, which is the business that I okay. run. Yeah, okay. so trying to bring it back to where we started. So Grayscale is a digital currency focused asset manager. Um, and so if any of you are familiar with 
business models like Wisdom Tree, Vanguard, PIMCO, mm -hmm. iShares, et cetera, we are hoping to emulate that business model by launching an entire family of products that let people access digital currencies through mm -hmm. traditional investment structures. We have a little bit more than $2 billion in assets today. We have five different investment funds that we're currently running. We'll have eight funds by the end of this, uh, hmm. actually by the end of this month. Um, you so just launched a new one, right? Just launched a new one, which I'd love to talk about later on as well. Um, but that's kind of who we are, what we're doing. Um, and so I think the combination of all of that, for better or for worse, but probably better, puts a center of gravity around us with respect to the digital currency ecosystem. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we're having a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, so. it sounds like it. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, can I can I just jump back and ask a quick question about sure. the venture capital investment? Sure. What's the size uh, in terms of dollars or that portfolio? And like, what are you aiming for? Yeah, so off the top of my head, I don't know the size of the portfolio because I'm not involved in our venture deals. I okay. know all of our entrepreneurs and our portfolio companies. Mm -hmm. um, if you guys go on Crunchbase or any other VC tracking site, I'd say about 90, 95% of our investments are publicly known. The ones that aren't are just companies okay. that are in stealth mode. So you okay. can see all of our funding rounds and stuff like okay. that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And for Grayscale, the asset manager, do you have fund, will, do you foresee that you'll have a team of fund managers in-house or will you be more of a manager selection type so, model? Yeah, so everything we're doing is in-house. Mm -hmm. We're always looking for managers to kind of put onto our platform, so to speak, or mm -hmm. kind of bring into the family. Um, we just haven't found managers yet that we're ready that can kind of handle the dollar sizes that mm -hmm. we're handling. Um, but there are some sharp people that are running active strategies in the digital currency mm -hmm. space. I'm just going to pause there and see if anybody has any questions about the business model and the three businesses that Michael mentioned. The broker dealer sounds fascinating. So does your do you I don't know if you know the answer to this but does the broker dealer then have to register with CIPIC and so there's yeah. a lot of regulatory. There's a ton. So I think yeah. long story short is there's a lot of different platforms in the space where, and different methods for how people are getting exposure to the space. We are doing our best to be the adults in the room, operate mm -hmm. regulated businesses. And oftentimes that actually inhibits our ability to do some of the things we want to do because mm -hmm. a lot of the existing regulation around financial instruments and broker dealers and you know anything that's kind of out there mm -hmm. oftentimes is 80 100 year old legislation and we're talking about things that didn't exist eight years ago mm -hmm. and so trying to take them and fit them into kind of this antiquated mm -hmm. legislation can sometimes be really challenging mm -hmm. um, and so we have five six different law firms on retainer that we do a lot of work with. Um, but we're also doing what we can to kind of support policy change. There's a couple of nonprofits and think tanks mm -hmm. in DC that we work really closely together with. Mm -hmm. um, and the regulatory environment is continuing to firm up, but there's still mm -hmm. a lot of ambiguity. That's great. Um, I have a question on Grayscale. You oh. mentioned that um, you're looking at sort of iShares as a potential model. Um, that you're working towards, and that's largely um, a vehicle for retail investors to get exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, so far, to my understanding, you only offer sort of the GBTC trust, uh, which is Bitcoin related to mm -hmm. retail investors. All your other trusts are for accredited investors. Mm -hmm. Over the long run, do you see sort of who do you see as your main customer? Is it sort of more the institutional side? Is it the retail? Is it a combination of both? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'd say that we want to be 
that trusted authority that people go to when they want to think about deploying capital into the space. And so it's going to be everybody from retail investors all the way to institutional investors and everything in between. Um, the reason why GBTC is our only retail offering at the moment is because it's the only one of our products that has been around for more than one year. And so it's eligible to have a public quotation. Any of the other products we've launched are still um, being only marketed to accredited investors under Reg D. And so once each of them kind of pass their first birthday, we'll look to transition them out into the public markets. And they'll each have public quotations the same way that GBTC does. Can I just ask for GBTC, uh, GBTC is a unit investment trust. So was that a necessary, was that the necessary structure for it because it, the underlying is Bitcoin or? Not necessarily. So I think when we started looking at this back in 2013, we were looking at, I think it's very difficult to kind of classify Bitcoin as currency, mm -hmm. commodity, some combination thereof, but mm -hmm. we started looking at different structures, right? We looked at hedge funds, we looked at mutual funds, we looked at ETFs. Um, closed-end funds, open-ended funds, ETNs, I mean, you name it. I think ultimately we looked at GLD, um, so that's a Spider Gold ETF, um, and it's a grantor Delaware Trust. Um, and although GLD has some piece of it that's not just physically backed gold, they use derivatives, they have leverage, some lending, other things embedded in it, um, it became pretty clear that if our goal was to ultimately create these products with the ultimate goal of getting them to be NYSE or NASDAQ listed ETFs, that trust structures were the best way to go and commodity-based trusts for the most part, mm -hmm. that our ETFs are in fact grantor trust structures. So, okay. you know, maybe it was the right choice, maybe it was the wrong choice. Um, so far it's done very well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that fund alone owns today greater than 1% of all the Bitcoin outstanding. Um, and we have daily subscriptions. We're adding new assets into the fund every day. So, um, so far, so good. Okay, thank you. Uh, one question here, and I'm just gonna repeat the question after it's asked so yeah, sure. the people behind can hear. So yes. uh, I was reading earlier, these, I guess you know, last week, there was the first real estate private equity fund that was raised in cryptocurrency. Um, and it, for me, it was very, difficult to understand because they would, I think that their strategy was trying to replicate some kind of investment trust in cryptocurrencies, but the underlying assets were real estate. Okay. Uh, my first question, I mean, definitely not the same investor doing, but how do you manage liquidity when your underlying is Bitcoin? Okay, great question. So the question for those of you that didn't hear it was uh, in partly in reference to a real estate, a real estate fund that launched, um, and the underlying component of the question is, how do you manage liquidity for a product like GBTC when the underlying is Bitcoin? Sure. So great question. So all of our funds are um, 506C private placements. So we're raising assets in unregistered, restricted format. And anyone who's buying them directly from us is statutorily held to being in the investment for one year after which GBTC acts as the mechanism by which they get liquidity. So they actually buy shares directly from us and then a year plus later, anytime they want, can actually sell the shares out into the public market. And so unlike an ETF or even a mutual fund where there's a destruction of shares and then a subsequent selling of the assets coming out of those shares, um, in many senses, GBTC looks and feels and trades a little bit more like a closed-end structure because the shares are actually never destroyed and the Bitcoin never actually come out of the vehicle and get sold. So liquidity is not something that 
we're necessarily looking at or concerned about on the way out. Liquidity is something that we're always looking at and monitoring on the way in. So as new investors are coming into the fund, if you give us $100 in the, GB, in the Bitcoin Investment Trust private placement, that means we actually need to go out and source $100 worth of Bitcoin. And so we're always kind of monitoring the market, figuring out where liquidity is, et cetera. And so there, historically and still to this moment, Bitcoin has not been something where liquidity has been an issue. In fact, liquidity has only gotten easier for us. Yes. In the back, yes. Yeah, so do you guys hold any kind of cryptocurrency other than Bitcoin and Ethereum? Because mm -hmm. there's, I mean, there's an ICO every, you know, few days. Oh, Ray, Ray, yeah, so he's asking if we own anything um, in our funds besides Bitcoin and Ethereum, because mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of ICOs and other assets coming to the market. Can you raise your hand if you think you know what an ICO is? Can you raise your hand if you've participated in an ICO? Can you, raise, can you keep your hand raised if you participate in an ICO and you still think it was a good thing to participate in? Okay, cool. I know, <laughs> so that, that's, when the hand, sure. that's when the hands get shy, right? <laughs> um, so yes, so we do. So our first fund, the Bitcoin Investment Trust, long only, passively managed, just holds Bitcoin. Our second fund, same structure, passively holds Ethereum Classic. Third fund holds Zcash. Um, and then we just last week launched our first basket fund. Um, so that fund is Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, Litecoin, and Ripple is its current composition. It's intended to cover 70% of the digital asset market and will be rebalanced every quarter. There's a lot of other qualifiers and disqualifiers for inclusion in the fund um, that has to do with our ability to be on board with the custodial solutions available for a given asset, um, liquidity, a whole bunch of criteria, but that's its current composition. Um, and then we're launching a whole suite of other products in the coming weeks that'll include things like Litecoin, Ripple, so on and so forth. Um, but we have vehemently stayed away from ICOs, and I do not think ICOs will be a part of any of our product structures anytime soon. Um, before we take another question, can I just jump back? Sure. Could you talk a little bit about like the difference between Ethereum and Zcash for anyone in the audience who's not familiar? Yeah. Raise your hand if you know what Ethereum is. Raise your hand if you know what Zcash is. Okay, wow, this is great. Um, okay, so Ethereum. So Ethereum is a digital protocol um, that was, you know, for the most part, not intended to be money, um, whereas Bitcoin was. And the idea for Ethereum was that it was going to be this quote unquote gas, the same way gas powers a car, um, that would allow for all these amazing decentralized applications, right? And a decentralized everything. So Ethereum was gonna be this platform on which you could build all of these <coughs> decentralized applications. And so it started to be contemplated, well, why do we have JP Morgan Chase? Why not a decentralized bank? Um, why do we all use Uber to get us from here to there? Why not a decentralized model, et cetera? And so Ethereum, um, although there's a fantastic um, group of developers growing rapidly all over the world that are working on building these applications that use the Ethereum token to power them and incentivize security on that network and participation, for the most part, Ethereum and its subsequent price rise has largely been driven by Ethereum actually becoming the fuel for ICOs or initial coin offerings. Um, and so that has primarily been the funding mechanism that has been received by those who are raising ICOs. Um, 
and we can talk more about Ethereum and different applications and things that I'm seeing being worked on, et cetera. And I think someone here was working at Consensus, so we can talk about that too. Um, Zcash, on the other hand, is a protocol that was launched a little over a year ago, probably about a year and a half ago. And so Zcash very strongly borrowed from the Bitcoin code base, um, things like a 21 million <coughs> coin cap um, on its issuance, a defined supply rate, things like that. But one of the features or, or I guess, <laughs> attributes um, of Zcash that was really important to its structuring and its launch was that it was going to have a shield of privacy built into the transactions. And so in things like Bitcoin, if I send Bitcoin from me to you, um, not only is that record of that transaction forever embedded on this immutable ledger, the Bitcoin blockchain, um, but actually everyone can see it. You can look back at the address that I sent to you from and see how many other Bitcoin reside on it. You can look at my address and say, well, that Bitcoin that Michael just sent me, where else has that Bitcoin been? And you can trace it all the way back through time looking at the blockchain. Um, on the contrary, Zcash said, well, that's really great and let's build upon that. But there are some non-nefarious attributes or non-nefarious activities that could be undertaken um, using a digital currency that had a shield of privacy built into the transaction where I'm able to send Zcash to you, but it's completely anonymized based on where it's coming from and where it's going to. Mm -hmm. And so we had got excited about Zcash, not only by the team of scientists that have worked on it, um, but a lot of the use cases. And we actually just wrote an investment thesis around Zcash which you guys can grab off our Twitter or on our webpage, which you know I think would be informative. But I think we're kind of looking at Zcash as almost like a digital um, Swiss bank account or like an offshore deposit account, mm -hmm. where in this age of Equifax and credit card mm -hmm. hacks and identity theft, you know, we're in this age of dwindling privacy that's actually, I think, kind of rapidly decreasing. <coughs> um, and so whether people want to recognize it now or will unfortunately have to recognize it in the future, privacy and financial privacy is actually going to come at a premium. And we think that Zcash actually stands to capture a piece of that market. Interesting. Yeah. A lot of questions. Yeah. Um, are you also involved in <coughs> quantity trading of these currencies, like trend following, mean reversion, fair trading kind of things? Um, so we at Grayscale are not, and our broker-dealer, the trading arm of our business, is not either. They're primarily just block buying and selling digital assets, matching off buyers and sellers on a principal basis. Um, there are ways in which you can be looking at digital currencies, be it Bitcoin or otherwise, um, looking at 24-hour markets that are generally nascent. Um, and so that creates price disparities between different geographies. Um, different times of the day, different days of the week, different currencies, um, where if you have a pretty strong stomach for counterparty risk, there are great arbitrage opportunities you know, between the US and the Philippines, or the Philippines and South Korea. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, and I think one of the challenges there around extracting that value is building sustainable APIs that interface with each of those exchanges, being able to move coins in and out of exchanges, and then also being able to move fiat in and out of each of those exchanges. Um, and so inevitably, at some point, you're going to trip up um, and either lose money or not be able to get money out. And so I caution people when they start kind of exploiting those differences. But I think as you're seeing 
more liquidity in the digital asset market in general, a lot of that is going to be arbed out, and you're going to start seeing more kind of 24-hour, like liquid global market for a given token, particularly at the upper echelon of the asset class, right? Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ripple, Litecoin, et cetera. Do you guys have a view on like inverse ETFs and some of the other yes, that's... more complex, not more complex, but some of the other yeah. different kinds of products that have emerged? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, a little bit of a sensitive question, but it's totally fine that mm -hmm. you asked. Okay. Um, and I have to be a slightly careful on what I say here. So mm -hmm. we spent, or I spent, the better part of 2017, um, not in Philly, but in DC, working with the SEC on launching a Bitcoin ETF. Mm -hmm. um, so we were taking our Bitcoin fund, which is a four-year track record, has been trading publicly as GBTC for the last mm -hmm. two plus years and converting that into an ETF structure on the NYSC. Mm -hmm. um, the reception was overall very positive, but given where our regulators are with respect to their stance on digital currencies mm -hmm. at the moment, um, we felt it best to withdraw from that process, citing mm -hmm. that they just weren't ready for it. Mm -hmm. And we also felt that withdrawing from the process of creating a Bitcoin ETF and a pure Bitcoin-backed ETF, not a Bitcoin futures-backed mm -hmm. ETF, mm -hmm. um, was something that people clearly want, right? Mm -hmm. GBTC, our Bitcoin vehicle, is today the only US listed purely Bitcoin security that anybody can just trade in their brokerage account, in their IRA, et cetera. Um, and some days now, I know I've been talking about GLD, the Spider Gold ETF quite a bit, mm -hmm. the notional dollar value of, of trade in GBTC now actually some days is eclipsing <clears throat> GLD, which is an asset that has been around for you know mm -hmm. forever. So um, you know, I think that ETFs, um, will come. It's a matter of when, not a matter of if. Um, and I hope that we're certainly going to be well positioned to be the first, if, if not, um, you know, close follower. What's the reason for the ETF? Was that for intraday, so, ability to trade intraday? Or? Well, so one of the um, attributes that's interesting about the Bitcoin Investment Trust, where it trades publicly, or where it's publicly quoted now, is on the OTCQX market. So it doesn't mm -hmm. trade on NASDAQ or NYSE. The OTCQX market, is home to things like Roche, Adidas, Volkswagen. It's where a lot of ADRs actually trade in the US. Mm -hmm. And because there's a finite amount of shares to be bought and sold there every day, or rather it depends on our private investors electing to sell those shares, mm -hmm. um, because there's so much demand, the shares actually trade at a massive premium to their net asset value. Mm -hmm. And so obviously an ETF structure would be much more optimal with respect to investors transacting at or close to NAV, and then mm -hmm. there's authorized participants that would be arbing out any difference between mm -hmm. where Bitcoin is trading and where the shares are trading. Okay, all right, thanks. Yeah. Um, yes. Just, uh, how would you calculate Bitcoin's intrinsic value? It's a very good question. So talking about Bitcoin's intrinsic value. So I think about Bitcoin, I guess, across three different dimensions, two of which I think you could do some relatively simple math and come to a valuation for Bitcoin um, based on a couple of different probabilities and parameters, and the third of which I think is very hard to value. So the first of those is looking at Bitcoin as digital gold or gold 2.0. Um, and I don't want to offend any gold bugs in the room, but everybody looks to be about my age or thereabout, and gold is not something that generally resonates with our demographic. So I'll kind of, kind of shit all over gold, if that's all right. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an antiquated investment. Um, it is 
something that we have all kind of glommed onto as this um, doomsday scenario, store of value, inflation hedge, safe haven asset, because gold has these physical attributes that make it non-corrosive, et cetera. But what we often overlook is that the lion's share of the world's gold is sitting in vaults underground. It's not really used in industrial applications. Its divisibility is pretty difficult. Its portability is very difficult. And so when you start looking at Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin has a lot of those same attributes, whereas Bitcoin is verifiably finite in terms of its supply. Um, gold apparently is finite, but somehow we keep digging holes in the ground and finding more of it. Um, and you have people like Peter Diamantis who want to start mining asteroids for gold deposits and other things like that. So when you start looking at that, you know, Bitcoin has a lot of the same attributes as gold, but then is also much more divisible, obviously a lot more portable, and then certainly has a lot more utility, right? You can actually use Bitcoin to send payments around the world instantaneously for free. You can use it at merchants like Expedia and Overstock and Dell and so on and so forth. And so we think um, that Bitcoin as a gold 2.0, which I think is in um, is one limited use case for Bitcoin, is something that investors are starting to understand, it's starting to resonate with them. And so it's conceivable that Bitcoin captures some percentage of the seven trillion plus dollars um, currently in gold and gold products um, over some period of time. So you assign some probability to that happening. You say Bitcoin captures one, five, 10% of that, and the numbers start to get really silly really quickly. And very quickly, a $10,000 Bitcoin where we are today becomes a $100,000 Bitcoin, a million dollar Bitcoin, so on and so forth. Um, I think the second way we look at Bitcoin is as a payments rail, um, a way to move value. And so if you look at the world that you all live in, you're all on your computers right now, and some of you have Twitter up, some of you have email up, whatever it may be, information is moving instantaneously. Um, we have a 24-hour news cycle, and somehow, for regulatory reasons and or otherwise, um, value has not kept up with the same speed at which information moves. And it's becoming pretty clear that that's unacceptable in the world we live in today, right? You go to dinner with your friend, one of you pays, the other one immediately Venmo's the other one, right? Or, or Square pays them or whatever it may be. And so that aside, you kind of look at the existing frameworks for moving value, right? And here in the US, we have the Fed wire system, mm -hmm. Monday to Friday, you know, <laughs> 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. or whatever it is. But if I needed to send a wire on Saturday at 2 a.m., well, that's not going to happen, and it's going to need to wait till Monday morning till banks are open. And so I think a lot of that is reliance on centralized systems um, and also systems that don't speak to each other, right? The Fed wire system doesn't really speak to the SWIFT system, doesn't speak mm -hmm. to the Euroclear or the ACH system, et cetera. A lot of these systems have recently been hacked, and so they're not as foolproof as mm -hmm. they are kind of claimed to be. And so you can start looking at a lot of different ways that money is moving around the world today, whether it's cross-border payments, remittances, companies like Western Union, MoneyGram. It's, it's not acceptable to be charging you know, people that are pinching pennies together to send money back to their families abroad and charging them 10 12% commission to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that you can start looking at 
flows. You can look at money supplies, see how much money is moving around the world on a given day, whether it's FX markets, remittance, cross-border, et cetera, and either assess how much of that market Bitcoin and or other digital assets stands to take with a certain probability over a certain time frame, mm -hmm. and or you actually could do an assessment as to, well, if Michael and Sarah are sending you know, value between us, mm -hmm. there are companies already building or have built services where I send value and you receive that value. Mm -hmm. And we don't even know that Bitcoin is the rail in the middle over which that value is moving. Mm -hmm. And so you could also think about how much working capital would need to kind of be in the pipes to satisfy that demand of money flows. Mm -hmm. um, and again, come up with some kind of valuation for, for mm -hmm. where Bitcoin would be if there needed to be X amount of this scarce asset constantly tied up in the pipes to satisfy that demand. Um, and then I think the third way we look at Bitcoin is looking at you know, its inextricable tie, in our opinion, to its underlying blockchain. And the unbelievable ability for this technology married to a digital asset like Bitcoin to be able to very, very transparently and very um, immutably be able to track the transfer and ownership of any asset. And so here's where valuation gets very difficult because you can start tagging assets, mm -hmm. be them tangible or intangible assets, and put them on a blockchain, right? So you all see this stupid IBM commercial all the time now mm -hmm. that's like talking about, you know, tracking a tomato on a blockchain from farm to table. Like, listen, it's, it's, it's not happening now, it's not happening tomorrow, it's not happening next year, but it's not a far off thing, right? And you're starting to see really cool applications around, um, logistics and shipping and mm -hmm. the US Postal Service starting to look at blockchain and UPS and FedEx and all these other things, right? But if I could, you know, put this bottle of water on a blockchain because someone manufactured the bottle, sent it to Poland Spring, they filled it up, they sent it to a distributor, the distributor, you know, sold it to Wharton, you know, whatever. You could in real time know where this mm -hmm. is and know who owns what and there's a lot of efficiencies to be gained there, a lot mm -hmm. of oversight. Um, and, a, you know, unfortunately, it'll probably mean a reduction in jobs mm -hmm. and a lot of those existing processes today. Um, but there's a lot of value that can be unlocked for mm -hmm. it. And that's something that I think is very hard to value. Can I, um, so I have so many questions to follow sure. up on what you just mentioned. But uh, going back to the second, uh, the second method that you mentioned for potential ways to, to value, um, I'm sure you get asked this question all the time, but there's mention from time to time in the news about like an official digital currency, and I think there was a comment the other day. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Official meaning like government-backed yeah, digital government currency? Backed. Yeah, mm -hmm. so you will, in all of our lifetimes, see probably most G20, my prediction is that you will see most G20 countries operating on a digital fiat. Um, it'll be because not because they're so stoked or excited about blockchain technology, um, not because you know they believe in digital currencies, but more because they're gonna keep cracking down on oversight and making sure that money isn't being laundered and it's mm -hmm. not being used for nefarious activities, et cetera. Those fiat, digital fiats won't retain the same attributes as the digital currencies that I'm here talking to all of you tonight about because governments and central banks will still need the ability to pull all the levers that they pull. Mm -hmm. They'll be need to, they're not gonna ever commit to capping their digital fiat the way that Bitcoin is capped at 21 million units. Mm -hmm. um, 
governments are going to need to print or they're mm -hmm. going to need to retract or they're going to need to raise interest rates or whatever it may be. And mm -hmm. so I'd kind of say that we're almost already using a digital dollar, right? Mm -hmm. I'm 31, I'm almost 32. I don't carry cash. How many people in the room carry cash? Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, what, what do you even, who raised their hand that carries cash? What do you use cash for? Uh, for the food trucks. <laughs> Other than that, you put most things on a credit card because you want the points, right? Who wants points? Everyone, right? Exactly. And you could already say that like digital currencies are inherently almost like a precursor. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, points, um, whether it's Chase points, Amex points, Delta Sky Miles, those are all basically precursors to kind of this insane phenomenon around digital currencies, right? Mm -hmm. I'm stoked that I have all these Delta miles because now I can go use them and, and get a flight for free. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of the age that we're in now and the age that we're moving to. And digital fiat's going to come. Um, and they may drop it onto a blockchain so that there's proper oversight and proper regulation. But it is still going to be as meaningful a departure from what digital currencies, decentralized, non-government-backed currencies represent. Mm -hmm. And all of the reasons that people are so excited by digital currencies and, and the underlying technology is a lot because it's not backed by a central government, right? Mm -hmm. You have you know, people who live in Venezuela or Argentina or China or Russia or any of these geographies around the world where their government's continuing to fail them on the currency front. There's either hyperinflation, um, you know, they're running out buying televisions and vacuum cleaners to protect their purchasing power and hold you know, value in real mm -hmm. assets. Um, there's capital controls so they can't move money. Um, half the world's adult population doesn't even have financial services access. Mm -hmm. So everyone in this room has a credit card, right? Raise your hand, everyone has a credit card? Almost everyone, okay. Does everyone in this room have a bank account? Raise your hand if you don't have a bank account. Okay. Oh, you do have a bank account? Okay, yeah, no, we weren't gonna judge you either way. No don't judgment. Worry. So um, she only uses cash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you know that. That being said, um, we all have to realize how much we take that for granted, right? Every single one of us can walk into any bank; they'll gladly have us as a customer. Mm -hmm. We have a myriad of choices. Um, we could all get credit cards. We can all get lending. Um, you know, God forbid something happens to us. Systems are in place to pass that money to our family members, next mm -hmm. of kin, etc. We take all of that for granted. And when you kind of take that developed world bubble that we all live in, whether we all want to admit to it or not, um, half the world doesn't have that. Mm -hmm. And so that means that you can't finance your education and take out student loans. It means you can't finance a business and itch that entrepreneurial side that you have that you want to launch something. It means you can't store money and pass it on to your children, et cetera. And so, when you take those ideas and marry them with some of the fiat issues going on in certain geographies of the world, and then you kind of throw digital currency into the mix, well, wow, now something seems really attractive here where I no longer am placing my faith in a government that's constantly failing me, mm -hmm. and I can return the power over my value back to myself. Um, and so I believe that digital currencies, Bitcoin or otherwise, um, are the springboard to financial inclusion. Um, and we're in the early stages of seeing that happen. Um, but there isn't much of a, there, there's no like 
big hurdle that needs to be overcome to create that mm -hmm. because everyone has a cell phone in this room. We don't need to raise hands for that, okay? So, you know, whether you have a brand new iPhone 10 or just a simple feature phone, um, you can send and receive digital currency even through things like SMS. Mm -hmm. And so everyone in the world has one of those, right? And so that mm -hmm. is really the precursor to, I guess, getting online or getting on this network. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we're gonna see a lot of that. Great, thank yeah. you. Yes. Um, can you talk something about the competition among different different kinds of uh, digital currency? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there are now um, I don't even know probably close to two thousand, if not more, digital currencies that exist today. Um, the reason why there are so many, and you're continuing to see so many come online, has primarily, I think, to do with how easy it is to launch a digital currency. Um, so I can take the Bitcoin code base. All of these are open source projects, right? And so I can take the Bitcoin code base and I can say, you know what, I'm gonna tweak one tiny thing about this, call it Michaelcoin, launch it, um, and see if it sticks, see if people care about it. Um, and so a lot of those 2,000 plus tokens that are out there and all the ones that keep coming online, um, there's a lot of that going on. Um, you also, though, have some very smart people that are quitting their day jobs and going in on this full time that are launching digital currencies that have very targeted use cases. Um, oftentimes, or historically, maybe not so much anymore, it's been people looking at failures or what they perceive to be failures in Bitcoin because it's the most known, you know, the most accepted, most traded digital currency and trying to improve upon it or build it or build upon that um, failure or somehow you know, extracting something out of that. Um, but I would say that primarily my belief is that when kind of all the hype around this dies down, you're gonna see something that looks somewhat similar to the precious metals family where you have maybe 10 digital currencies that matter. They'll each have different addressable markets, different use cases, different prices. Um, and so, for example, you know, Bitcoin may just be that store of value coin, right? It may just be what we all use to sock money away or there's a new child that's born in the family, you give them a Bitcoin or you know, whatever that may be. Um, and it's nothing else. And then maybe we use something like Zcash as you know, where you store your privacy, you know, privacy wealth, right? Something you don't want other people to know that you have. Um, maybe use something like Ethereum or Ethereum Classic for smart contracts um, and Internet of Things applications. So they can coexist alongside each other, but I can be very confident in telling all of you all 2,000 plus of these things, or maybe there'll be 5,000 of them by the end of the year, I have no idea. They will all not continue to exist. Mm -hmm. What are your opinion on stable coins? Um, does anyone know what a stable coin is besides you? Okay, the people from Not the the people from the Wharton blockchain, blockchain club? club. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, one of the kind of things that's being discussed now is, as I just said, there's this notion around digital currency, Bitcoin specifically being this kind of store of value, gold 2.0 thing, right? Gold can be volatile and certainly is from time to time, but Bitcoin is certainly a lot more volatile than that. And so how is it that you can call something with as much volatility as Bitcoin has a store of value? 
And so there's this concept around creating stable coins. Um, and like the name implies, they're going to be stable, right? Um, I'm not sure there's enough track record of what they're trying to do to have a really informed opinion about them. Um, I'm generally kind of skeptical of them. I'm not sure they necessarily need to exist. Um, but what you'll probably see is one, two, three of them come online. People kind of watch them, monitor them, say, oh, that's a great idea, but let me build upon that, right? And then you're going to start seeing kind of this whole family of stable coins built out the same way that you know, there's several privacy-focused coins. There's Zcash, Monero, Dash, et cetera. And so you're starting to see kind of these sub-segments within the digital currency space where people are trying to compete for, I guess, kind of that same market share that I was just referring to, that there will be different digital currencies for different use cases. Yeah? You haven't asked a question yet. So uh, you talked about like there, there'll be like 5,000 and then you come down to like 10, 15. I mean, how do you, or like, how do you look at these, what are the attitudes that these guys will do? How do you kind of foresee that trend or like try to invest in those companies? How do you shortcut that? Sure. So um, the first three products that Grayscale launched in this order were Bitcoin, then an Ethereum Classic product, then a Zcash product. Um, again, those are high convictions for our parent company, DCG. Those are a lot of what its balance sheet is invested in. Um, and I think I'll almost, if I can even say this, we've been conservative in our space, if you will, where we identified Bitcoin early on um, as really having a couple great attributes surrounding it, a defined cap, a decentralized governance structure, um, certain divisibility, real world use cases that we can get our heads around. And so when we put people into Bitcoin and then they went up two, three, four, five, six, seven thousand percent, um, which they did. Um, and then we launched product two or we're looking for product two. Well, we had to say to ourselves, if I knock on your door and you're a, a product one investor and you're up seven thousand percent on product one, you're, I'm a nice guy, but you can all judge that as you will. You, you'll probably take a swing on product two, right? Our first idea was good. Hopefully our second one is. And so we're constantly evaluating what's coming up in the world and what our customers are asking us for. Mm -hmm. But it's honestly, the secret sauce is not that crazy. We like to find caps on coins because um, it creates scarcity value um, immediately. Um, and there are a lot of tokens that don't have defined caps, Ethereum being one of them, whereas Ethereum Classic does have a defined cap. Um, we like to see coins that have decentralized governance structures. And so when you look at kind of what we were just talking about of all these central banks all over the world that are destroying their currencies, et cetera, and there's central figureheads, um, we really favor coins where there's decentralized governance structures. And you have all different teams competing, um, checking each other, saying, well, we think it should be this way. We think it should be that way. Um, and kind of the best ideas and the best stuff historically has come out of that competition and multiple teams working on something. Um, so I think, you know, define cap, um, decentralized structures, certainly look at immutability. Um, and so we are, call us blockchain purists, but when the Ethereum blockchain had an event that reversed transactions, it gave us significant pause about its ability to be a platform on which 
enterprise applications and other things like that could ever get deployed. And so immutability is a very core component of what a blockchain is, right? Mm -hmm. Each time transactions hit the blockchain and they're cryptographically sealed off, they're never supposed to be touched again. They're never supposed to be altered. It's not a, whoops, I have a bad keystroke. It's there, it's done. Um, and so I think immutability is another thing. Um, and then finally, I think it's use cases, right? We're happy to see different digital currencies compete against each other, but we have to get our heads around different use cases that have real world applications and real world utility. And so our methodology is not all that crazy. It's not all that secretive, um, which then begs the question for things like Ripple, which have pre-mined, right? You know, all the Ripple's already been created which is something that we somewhat take issue with. There's some other issues that we see with Ripple, although we're also an investor in Ripple, the company. Um, but that should give you somewhat of a flavor of kind of our framework for how we evaluate tokens that we're excited about. Michael, you mentioned custody earlier. Can I just ask, how does custody work with Bitcoin? And what are your, and related, I guess, the whole issue of cybersecurity, what are your thoughts on that? It's, get men it's mentioned a lot when it comes to the digital currencies. Yeah, so cybersecurity is something that we take probably more seriously than anything about our business. Mm -hmm. um, with greater than $2 billion of digital currency at our disposal, you might mm -hmm. imagine that there's a pretty large target on our back um, because you know digital currencies can and do get hacked. Um, mm -hmm. And again, let me be clear about that. Digital currencies don't get hacked, mm -hmm. wallets get hacked, mm -hmm. um, exchange accounts get hacked, et cetera. But like Bitcoin, for example, is not something that ever has been hacked. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make that distinction because the popular press doesn't do that good of a job. Mm -hmm. So the US dollar never been hacked. The Chase Bank on the corner, when the security guards out to lunch, someone comes in and robs the bank. Mm -hmm. That's a security flaw at the Chase level that doesn't mean the US dollar is fundamentally flawed, right? Mm -hmm. If a robber comes in there and absconds with a bunch of cash. Mm -hmm. And so similarly, that's kind of what has happened with Bitcoin, where products and services, be them wallets or custody solutions or exchanges, et cetera, have been hacked because they've left a back door open for mm -hmm. someone to exploit, but the protocol itself hasn't been hacked. Mm -hmm. So for us, um, we have to constantly be evaluating what service providers are, are coming up in the world providing custody for digital assets. Mm -hmm. So until probably about two-ish, three-ish years ago, um, no one was really doing that. And so we actually had to do our own custody work, which was very scary, caused us to lose a lot of sleep. Um, and so I think the first real custody business we got excited about um, was a company called Zappo, um, X-A-P-O, not Zappos, um, like, like the shoes. Um, and we invested in Zappo. Um, they have a phenomenal team and a really strong track record of building great businesses. And what Zappo basically set out to do was to become the brinks, if you will, of the Bitcoin ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so they've developed this globally dispersed series of offline vaults that mm -hmm. can hold the private keys to digital assets and Bitcoin specifically. Mm -hmm. They don't service other assets besides Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And so through a very extensive due diligence process with them, our attorneys, accountants, auditors, et cetera, we got very comfortable with the Zappo solution and the fact that there was no single point of failure within their system mm -hmm. and that it obviously worked commercially for our mm -hmm. business. And so all of our Bitcoin for our Bitcoin investment fund um, is all custodied with Zappos. Mm -hmm. We have a third party custodian. Okay. 
<clears throat> there are other firms like BitGo and um, Ledger and um, a couple more that are coming online now that are mm -hmm. also businesses solely devoted to building custodial solutions for digital assets. Mm -hmm. And other ones besides Zappo have opened up their architecture to other digital assets, which I think is smart because they're recognizing that investors are not only just investing in Bitcoin, but they're investing in other assets as well, mm -hmm. usually with the idea that they're building either a diversified portfolio of digital assets and or just putting money into the assets that they're excited about. Mm -hmm. So. Um, Custody is still like an ongoing thing. It's still a nascent part of the industry, but mm -hmm. there are some really fantastic um, companies that are doing that. Um, and so Zappo and, and I'd say Ledger are probably the two that I'm most excited about and most okay. familiar with. Okay. Yeah? Thanks. Yeah. Um, from your vantage point, why is there such an appetite for ICOs? Why is there such an appetite for ICOs? In particular in Asia, as I hear. Yeah. So ICOs, just to make sure the whole room is on the same playing field, is an initial coin offering. Um, so an initial coin offering similar to um, an IPO, like a company going public on, on stock exchange, is a way to raise assets for a project in a completely decentralized way. So it very much kind of circumvents the existing asset raising framework of having underwriters and a syndicate of banks that underwrite a deal, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, I think that in general, um, we're in favor of seeing the capital formation process becoming easier um, for investors. You know, there's people in this room that I'm sure are either working on our ideas or have ideas and they need VC backed, you know, um, companies that they're going to need to go out and raise capital and wouldn't it be really nice to be able to float your idea out to the world and say who wants to invest in my project rather than running all over the world and pitching a bunch of VCs to invest in your idea yeah it sounds a lot easier the reason why there's such a craze for this is because I think a lot of the people that are investing in the ICOs are seeing it as opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to participate in um, and so usually really great ideas and really great projects are reserved for the Andreessen Horowitzes of the world and the Union Square Ventures of the world and the Kleiner Perkins of the world, right? The leading VC funds, which immediately um, kind of give your project a stamp of validation because these are the people that have invested in Facebook and Uber and Twitter and all these other things. Um, and so, the other reason why ICOs are going the way they are is because of the valuations that people are fetching for them. If I'm an entrepreneur and I approach those traditional VCs with my idea, I could today raise a $3 million round at a $10 million valuation or whatever it is, just who cares about the numbers. If I were to take that same exact project and do it as an ICO, I could probably raise 30 or $50 million at like a $300 million valuation. And so because there's such a frothiness in this market and so many people willing to participate, entrepreneurs who are doing this for the most part are kind of, I guess, you know, exercising the, you know, their control over this craziness. And if people are willing to fund them and take you know, their money, then, then they're gonna do it. Um, which I think is highly concerning. And, and I think you're starting to see a lot of regulation and kind of warning shots from the SEC mm -hmm. that ICOs are being done 
usually in an illegal framework and they're circumventing, at least in the US and for US securities regulation about asset raising, that it's not really complying with it at all. It's actually kind of giving it the middle finger. And I think the SEC is pissed off. And so I think you're going to see a lot of enforcement action starting to come out around this. And you're starting to see a little bit of that. Um, and I think the other thing that's going to cause the ICO market to ultimately die down, and I'm not saying every ICO is a scam or the entrepreneurs behind it aren't necessarily credible or, or won't um, ultimately run a great company, but it's almost more like a promissory note, right? Because usually at the stage where an ICO is being raised, you know, Sarah and I say, hey, everyone participate in our ICO. It's just this idea, or maybe we wrote a 10-page white paper, mm -hmm. and it was enough to get everyone in the room to contribute a bunch of Ethereum in exchange for a token that is tied to our project. The issue is, is that there's no governance. There's no oversight of this token that we've given you in exchange for your Ethereum. There's no one saying, we must deliver on X, Y, and Z in three months, six months, a year. And so it's kind of like an empty promise. Um, and so I'd be very surprised to see even a small percentage of the ICOs being raised to see the entrepreneurs behind them actually deliver on what was promised in their white paper or in their ICO raise, let alone when the SEC cracks down on them because mm -hmm. they did it illegally and they grant everyone who invested rescission rights, they're going to have to return a lot of capital to a lot of people. And that's going to be um, a pretty scary thing for, for Ethereum and for a lot of these founders in general. So if, if the value of Ethereum is being driven by these ICOs, mm -hmm. would you see a cratering in the SEC? Because they already, they're already recommending that. I mean, they're basically enforcing it by, by injecting it, right? That's, mm -hmm. the, that's the way Ethereum things. On a personal level, I think that Ethereum has a brand. I think people are excited about it. I think there's a market for it. I think you'll still continue to see speculation around Ethereum, and so it will be here. But I do think there could be significant downward pressure on Ethereum um, because of things like rescission rights that come out of ICO enforcements, where mm -hmm. the ICO that Sarah and I raised, we raised $30 million all in Ethereum. In a lot of those scenarios, the entrepreneurs weren't smart enough to take that $30 million of Ethereum and convert it to fiat currency. And so they're still riding the Ethereum, um, which is terrifying. Mm -hmm. Terrifying for them, terrifying for what they promised, um, and honestly, I guess, terrifying for the investors because they might not end up with any capital to actually fund or go after the idea that they mm -hmm. told people they were going to. Yes. Um, so we, we had the leadership team, or members of the leadership team from Ripple on campus a few weeks ago, and one of them made the claim that the future is between digital assets and blockchains is inextricably tied. Uh, what is your view on that? Do you think that blockchain, like the underlying technology, can survive without sort of the digital asset component, or are the two really tied hand-in-hand? Uh, hand? Yeah, I'm vehemently in the same camp. Um, the two are inextricably tied, particularly in scenarios like Bitcoin. The reason being that what makes Bitcoin so great, or one of the things that makes Bitcoin so great, is that the incentive structure of checks and balances was built into it from day one. Meaning that my ability to send Bitcoin and have the transaction be verified, it's not double spent, it's not a fraudulent transaction, et cetera, is because there's a miner or a pool of miners somewhere in the world confirming that transaction. 
And so as a result of their participation in securing the network, confirming my transaction, they're going to be spit out freshly minted Bitcoin and receive transaction fees. And so you constantly have this closed loop system where you have users and miners that have that economic incentive constantly to keep the network really secure and keep the network going. If you strip out the economic incentive, then there's no reason for people to be investing in mining, um, meaning that they're not going to buy computers, they're not going to um, invest in electricity, invest in systems, invest in you know, increasing their mining capacity, um, which I think is probably one of the most important parts of keeping the network going. If you strip that out and you just have a blockchain, what you have is something that we already have and we already had before we all started using this buzzword blockchain. It's just a ledger, just a digital ledger, right? That's all it is. There's, there's digital ledgers all over the place, right? If I go to my Chase account and it says, and I query it and it says you have $100 in your brokerage, in your checking account, I'm querying a Chase ledger um, that's telling me that that's the answer of what it knows and what it has. What Bitcoin and other ledgers like it represent is that when I'm querying Chase to see how much I have, Chase is agreeing on it, Goldman Sachs is agreeing on it, Citigroup is agreeing on it, everybody who's on that same network is agreeing on it. And that's, that's where the innovation is. It's the fact that it's completely decentralized, the ledger is immutable, it can't be tampered with, and there's no single point of failure. Mm -hmm. What is something which can bring down the whole cryptocurrency? Could you repeat the question? The question was what, what could bring down the entire cryptocurrency space? <sighs> um, a lot of things. Um, um, I think the first thing is if, I think that there's a lot of switching costs embedded in the current system today that other things would need to come along to displace them in order to see people switch from this to something else. And I'm not just talking about Bitcoin, I'm talking about a lot of different currencies. Um, the reason why I place a low likelihood on that is because they're all, for the most part, open source projects, which lends them the ability to adapt and have different things built into them over time. And Bitcoin and other things have grown over time and had other things built into them. So I don't think it's necessarily that something else is gonna come along, um, but I do think that there's other things like if people just decide that they're not into this anymore, or um, I don't think that there's gonna be enough regulation to kind of kill this entire thing. I think there's gonna be enough regulation that's gonna cause a lot of it to get killed, but there will be a piece of it that remains. I think the concept of a digital currency, of a concept of leveraging digital currencies, blockchain technology, distributed ledger technology is here to stay vehemently. Um, but I think for the industry and these assets to grow and thrive, certainly in the US, um, they're not gonna exist in a vacuum. They're certainly gonna need to have some kind of regulatory framework around them, the same way that financial services does and the healthcare industry does and so on and so forth. Um, so I can't think of that many things that keep me up at night that is going to um, <coughs> kill the digital currency market overall. Um, but there's things I'm not thinking of. Um, so great question, though. I, I'm a little stumped. We're going to take like one more question, and sure. I think we'll wrap up. Yes. So yeah, you continuing his idea. What do you think when this will become very big and it will directly compete with central banks or government's authority? 
What do you think in that scenario? I think it's already competing with central banks. That's why you're seeing <coughs> places like Venezuela and you know, creating digital currencies tied to oil and, and things like that to try and regain control. Um, I think the best analogy is kind of like the genies out of the bottle. Um, and when there's clamp downs from governments, like, you know, a year and a half ago, 90 plus percent of the exchange traded volume for Bitcoin was happening in China. Um, and then some regulation caused that to come to a grinding halt. Did Bitcoin disappear? Did it go away? No, it just moved geographies. And now South Korea and Japan are probably the largest, most liquid places for Bitcoin trading on exchanges. Um, and I think governments like always and regulators like always um, are going to have to play catch up. The innovation is happening at such a rapid pace that they're not going to be able to keep up with it. Um, and I think it's here to stay. I really do. Um, so I can't think of any one thing that a government is going to do. And actually, if any government does vehemently kind of outlaw, ban it, um, I don't know if there's any psychology folks in the room, but generally, human behavior kind of enjoys <coughs> being subversive. Um, and so when people say no, kind of entices people only to do it more. Um, so we'll have to see. But different resources like BitLegal and things like that online are places where you can kind of look at a global map and kind of hover over different geographies and kind of see the temperature of the government towards digital currencies. So that's a kind of a good resource to help so stay in front of that. Now it has been only single government summit. Are you worried that sometimes there is a coordinated effort by governments, to say all the big, big countries government come together and say, okay, fine, this is enough? By the time the G10 or G20 can actually schedule the meeting, which like even just kind of gives me a headache thinking about, and this is significant enough to be high enough on their docket of things to discuss, it'll be way too late. Um, just my opinion, but that's what I think. I'm happy to take a few more questions, whatever you want to do. Okay, let's take a few more. <clears throat> Thank you. Yeah, hi, my name is Ajay. Thank you very much for this awesome discussion. So just recently I read about seven days ago, the Fed president from Minnesota, Neil Kashkari, he came out and said that Bitcoin is a novelty and it's for toy collectors. <coughs> as you rightly said, that the barrier to entry is, is just not that high. I mean, me and a bunch of our friends in the room, we can go create a new currency tomorrow. Yeah. So what do you see? I mean, don't you see that there is a threat that tomorrow Bitcoin could be replaced with something that has a much better confirmation time? Why, why pay so much for Bitcoin when there are other things that could do much better and uh, perhaps a Wikipedia of the cryptocurrency, something like that. I think it has to do with the size of the user base and the security of the network. So you can undercut um, how widespread Bitcoin is and how many people are using it and seeing kind of wallet growth, transaction growth, et cetera. That's why Bitcoin is having um, growing pains, right? The Bitcoin network is being used so much now that it's bogged down and there's a transactional backlog, almost like Black Friday when everyone's running around with their credit card shopping. It takes a long time to get responses from the Visa server farm. Um, that's been happening in Bitcoin for a while and so arguably a sign of its success. Um, and so it has to do with network effect and, and, and how many people are building on Bitcoin and or using Bitcoin. Um, I think keep it up in the lead I also think you can't undercut the open source nature of it. And so 
if a bunch of you really smart Wharton folks get together and launch a digital currency, keep in mind that any attribute or feature that you add into that that becomes popular enough or something that people want, it can just get integrated into Bitcoin. So you have to keep in mind the open source nature of the project that it can continue to sustain a competitive advantage partially because it's an open source project. Mm -hmm. All right, one more question. Um, so Union Square Ventures has a really famous theory around sort of the, proto, uh, the fat protocol theory, which is that um, unlike sort of web, traditional web companies uh, where TCP, IP, SMTP accrued no value, it was the companies like Facebook, Google that were built upon it that created a lot of value. Uh, what is your view of that in the crypto world? Do you think that is it the Bitcoin protocol, the Ethereum protocol that's going to accrue all the value, or is it sort of the Coinbase's and the other applications that are getting built upon it? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think there's zero doubt that there will be some very profitable, very high-profile companies that will come out of this industry that will be very important for years and years to come, whether that's Coinbase and Ripple and kind of those two which have achieved that unicorn status or others. Um, I think a lot of them will be acquisition targets for a lot of the incumbents. So like, will a State Street or a Bank of New York, who are arguably some of the largest custodians in the world, look to purchase companies like Zappo or BitGo or Ledger? Yeah, they're going to have to mm -hmm. because they're never going to have the manpower or the bandwidth to build these solutions. They're going to need to buy them because it's going to take them too long to do it. However, I think going back to your example about TCPIP versus kind of the companies that were built on top of the internet, I see digital currencies, at least in the near term, the most liquid way to play the proliferation of the entire industry as a whole. Because getting access to participate in any of these companies, and I'm certainly not suggesting you participate in ICOs, um, is few and far between and is still reserved for VCs like my firm and Union Square Ventures, who we co-invest with all the time and things like that. And so arguably, any of the companies that are building products and services on top of these layer application layers, right, be it the Bitcoin network, the Ethereum network, et cetera, they're only going to be thriving, successful companies if those underlying currencies are being utilized um, quite a bit. And so we tell people who are approaching the space, the first place to get exposure is to the currencies themselves. And if you have the bandwidth, the wherewithal, and the patience to be able to invest in any of the companies, great. Um, but a lot of them are going to be duds. That's why we have 120 companies in our portfolio. Um, I do think, though, that back to that actual TCPIP example, buying Bitcoin, um, a verifiably scarce asset, the best analogy I can think of is if you were smart enough to buy what today are all the most valuable domain names back in the early 90s. So if you bought Apple.com and Amazon.com and all these other things back in the 90s, like that to me is what you're doing when you're buying Bitcoin today. It seems like one of the biggest reasons that governments might want to crack down on this is tax. Mm -hmm. That it's going to be increasingly difficult to collect tax on different transactions. <clears throat> and so how big a threat is that? And what do you think would be the response? Um, I think whether people are transacting in digital currencies or live their entire lives in cash off the grid, um, there will always be people who are skirting um, taxation. Um, I think the IRS actually was very smart. In 2015, they 
put out their guidance around the taxation of digital currencies, which was something the industry was dying for. Um, in the year that followed, only 800 people, myself being one of them, um, declared digital currency gains on their tax returns. And um, there's a really high profile case going on right now with Coinbase where they're wanting to turn over transactional records so that people are paying taxes on those because the IRS classified Bitcoin as property. Um, and so you should be paying long and short term taxable um, gains on it like you would with a stock. Mm -hmm. um, but again, something like Bitcoin, which has this you know, transparent ledger that everyone knows about and at some point, whether it's the on-ramp through an exchange or the off-ramp through an exchange or a transaction, you're gonna ultimately identify who you are. Um, and so it is probably the worst mechanism possible for skirting any kind of, any government authority, doing any kind of nefarious activity. And so I hate when I see the popular press start writing stories like Bitcoin's great for human trafficking and you know buying bombs and all this other stuff. Um, it's, it's probably the worst. Um, we've invested in two companies that I can think of off the top of my head. One of them is called Chainalysis. The other one's called Elliptic. They literally, their only service is blockchain surveillance and monitoring. And their biggest clients, Treasury, FBI, you know, DEA, you name it, because they can catch all the bad guys. They love this. All those law enforcement agencies love this because unlike meeting you in an alley and you know, exchanging cash for a gun, so long as we're not caught on camera, no one's going to ever know. On the other hand, if I'm buying a gun from you and paying you in digital currency like Bitcoin, that's a transaction that's forever going to be on that blockchain. And at some point, that's going to get tied back to me. It's a terrible mechanism for doing anything you wouldn't want to be caught doing. All right, we'll take one more question. Last question. Yeah, yeah. so I think <laughs> your point, Silver was also the similar case where like, uh, the Silver entrepreneur using this immutability, mm -hmm. not, this, not just this entrepreneur, they grabbed the FBI agents who were colluding with them mm -hmm. using the same. So now, yeah, the FBI caught their own people. <laughs> yeah. Their own people using right. this immutability. Right. So last thing about pollution, you mentioned, I guess this Chris Bernisky method, and we equal to PQ, so all these valuation methods, do you really use them and how frequently do you use them for making investment decisions? My personal investment decisions? Like for, in general, for your ventures or in, in this industry, do you see getting them used? I'll be the first to say that I think investing in digital currencies doesn't come without the highest of risks. And I'll flash red lights all day long at anyone who wants to have a conversation about it. I think on the risk spectrum, it's at the end and then some. I will also be the first to say that I think it'll probably have a binary outcome. Um, I have a hard time figuring or finding a way that all this goes to zero. Um, and every day it doesn't head in that direction. I get more and more confident that it's not going to. Um, but I think it either is kind of a zero scenario or it's gonna be worth a hell of a lot more than it is today um, because we're so early into it and we haven't even still identified all the killer uses, uses for them. All right. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah.